Hello all and warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that seeks out and recounts for you some of the more unfamiliar and often forgotten cases, both solved and unsolved ones, from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these cases is myself, Paul, the creator of the show and the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title. It's fabulous as ever having you guys join me here once again today, which I thank you so kindly for, and I hope that as you hear this episode, that you're all good and well. So before we get on with part three of the South Wales Slayer this week, I want to say many thanks to all of you for voting for the Patreon episode of the show that's going to be released on the show's upcoming second birthday towards the end of the month, which I did last year and I'm doing again this year as a big thank you to you all from myself. I did kind of suspect that there might be, and it seems that there is, an overwhelming favourite, but we'll see how the head-to-head goes on Twitter, I'll put it up there shortly. Whichever one is voted for anyway, it'll be released on the 26th of September for all to hear. I know I've said 23rd before, but that's me, um, I got the date wrong. It's the 26th it'll be out. If you can't wait until then and you want to have all of your bases covered and hear them all, then like very kind new show supporters Andrew Eastwood and Sarah have found, it's very reasonable and it couldn't be simpler to do. You just use the ever-present link in the episode show notes or seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site and get yourself tales such as The Murder of Janie Shepherd, Angel from Hell or Death in Highgate Woods, just to name but a couple of them. And a fresh tale drops each month as a thank you for your kind support. So there's not too much rambling bollocks to start this week because we've got a bit of an episode to get to and I'm sure that I will get plenty of that in there. For the past couple of episodes on the show we've been working through the story arc of the South Wales Slayer, an umbrella title that I've given to a quite remarkable case that I've long wanted to cover on the show and here its turn has come now. We've looked in past weeks at a pair of savage double shotgun murders nearly four years and less than seven miles apart in distance, in the Pembrokeshire area of South Wales. The crimes were for many years never officially linked, although detectives long considered that due to the method of execution and the close proximity of the crimes that the same killer was responsible. Both are extremely brutal and horrific crimes that are covered much more in depth in the earlier episodes of the South Wales Slayer arc parts 1 and 2 of the Recluses and the Ramblers episodes respectively, so if you haven't heard those ones yet, you're much better starting off the whole saga from there, or else this episode probably won't have the same context for you. So if you don't already know of the case, and I'm sure there are loads of people who are out there listening who do, are you ready to learn of who came to be the police's prime suspect? I bloody hope so, because it's taken me most of the previous week to do. And it's once again one that I've broken up into two parts to make more manageable due to the sheer volume of information concerning the case, which makes this, in the words of Papa Lazarou himself, just a saga now. But as I've said previously, it's about how best to tell the story, and I think that this way works the best. The episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so as is always advised here on the show, please use your discretion whilst listening, guys. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts as this week we look at part three of the South Wales Slayer arc with a case I've entitled simply Huntsman and Ottawa. It's Wednesday the 6th of March, 1996 
and were in the fields bordering the Mount Woods, near the Mount Council Housing Estate, which is located very close to the Pembrokeshire village of Stainton, near Milford Haven. And five children, teenagers, okay, but still children, were out hanging around and roaming around the area as teenagers do, although probably not armed with knives like so many sadly are today. They were just hanging around, messing about, having a sneaky fag here and there, and had spent the early evening hours messing about on a rope swing in the woods before heading from here on a walk through the surrounding fields. The group of five consisted of a mix of girls and boys of similar ages, 16-year-old Jane, 15-year-olds Maria, Susan and David, and David's 14-year-old younger brother Stephen. These, of course, not being their real names, those have never been released to the public. At about 7pm, as the daylight was fading, the group had decided to make their leisurely way back through the fields towards their homes on the Mount Estate, when they suddenly heard a sound behind them and turning were confronted by the sight of a bright light heading across the field towards them, being held by an approaching figure. The group believed initially that the figure was a friend of theirs, we shall call him Wayne, who regularly went shooting in the Mount Woods, and so addressed the figure holding the light as such, but to no answer. They shouted again for Wayne as the figure approached, but instead of an answer, when the figure caught up with them, they were presented with a terrifying sight of a combat-jacketed figure shining a light similar to a handheld car lamp at them. What rooted the five children to the spot was perhaps the balaclava that the man was wearing, but more likely it was the double-barrelled sawn-off shotgun that he pointed at the group, saying gruffly, in a strong Welsh accent, Do I fucking look like Wayne? Instantly under the control of this terrifying figure, the group was made to walk a short distance across the fields and lie face down, where the man asked the group if they had any money before roughly searching each one of them. When David began crying, terrified, he was clubbed over the head with the butt of the gun, following which the others were all petrified further into silence, complete with the man demanding that they remain still and not to look at him. The eldest of them, Jane, was then grabbed by the hair and dragged away a short distance from the others by the man. She was forced to lie on her back and told to stop crying, where she was at first indecently assaulted, then had the neck of her polo neck sweater pulled over her mouth to act as a gag. Undoing her trousers and forcing her to partially remove them, Jane was then horrifically raped by the man at knife point. When he'd finished his assault, telling Jane to then get redressed and not to tell anyone, the man turned his attentions again to the remainder of the group, specifically another one of the girls, Susan. Whilst lying face down, Susan was indecently assaulted by the man in a degrading sexual attack before he then ordered the five to their feet and instructed them to start walking back up the field. Before the man walked off, he threatened the five children by saying, Don't look back. Remember what I said. Don't tell anyone because I know where you live and I'll come and get you. To emphasise this threat, the man then fired the shotgun into the air. Understandably, not one of the children looked back at the figure, and when they were all in the safety of Maria's home, who lived nearest to the fields, they immediately contacted police. In a short space of time, the area was swamped with uniformed officers and police tracker dogs, but the man was long since gone. 
a massive inquiry was launched, led by Detective Superintendent Aldwin Jones, and although the five traumatised youths were spoken to, they could offer little in the way of a description of the attacker. They described a Welsh-accented attacker wearing a balaclava with larger-than-normal eye holes cut into them, about five feet nine and of slim build, wearing blue jeans, black combat boots, gloves, and a checked inner-lined green wax jacket. The two boys were into outdoor sports and so were able to describe the shotgun that the attacker wheeled as being a side-by-side barrel type with a lanyard clipped to both the barrel and the butt. Although the resultant inquiry was massive and did lead to several suspects being quickly and methodically identified, all were ruled out of the investigation and the investigation soon ground to a halt. They were looking for an obviously dangerous individual one who was an experienced and confident enough offender to control multiple victims with some level of forensic awareness, as no forensic evidence was recovered from either the victim or any physical evidence from the crime scene. He was also aggressive, ready and willing to use violence, and one who was armed with a loaded, double-barreled, sawn-off shotgun, which after he'd fired, he'd collected the spent cartridge and removed it from the scene. It was offender criteria that wasn't lost on Doved Powers Police, and chillingly, the Mount Sex attacks had taken place within sight of the scene, just two fields away of a previous crime that investigating officers still remembered all too well, the still-unsolved double murder ten years before at Scoverston Manor. Shotguns and Scoverston. It was a thought that crossed police minds. For somewhere that's regularly described as one of the safest places to live, aside from this horrific, degrading crime, and of course the two unsolved double shotgun murders, the surrounding villages in that part of Pembrokeshire, a cluster in the northern part of the county in a triangle covering the areas of Milford Haven, Rosemarket and Nayland, had over the previous 13 years also been besieged by a large number of burglaries and home invasion robberies that police had soon come to believe was the work of a single offender. In each case, the properties targeted were all ones within rural, isolated locations that bordered onto fields or woods, and in many cases, wire fencing to the rear of the properties was either fully or partially cut, allowing the offender ease of access or regress, but also often only cut in parts so as to cause injury to anyone who was possibly pursuing, either tripping them over or clotheslining them. Often also, spices such as chilli or curry powder would be scattered around at different points along the offender's selected escape route to confuse the scent of any police tracking dogs. Once inside the property, which were usually unoccupied ones, the offender would take mainly cash or jewellery, but also would take a wide-ranging assortment of obscure items, ranging from electrical goods to family photographs, books or clothing, some items of which would be found abandoned or stashed amongst the hedgerows where police dogs had often followed the offender's trail. Keys found at the scenes, or for the property, would also be taken away. There'd been in excess of some 60 offences such as these throughout this triangle over the years since 1983, always committed in the early evenings of the winter months where darkness came earlier and at least two robberies had been committed in the area where women had been at home alone at the time the intruder had broken in. 
On the occasions that he was seen, the intruder was always masked in a balaclava and gloves. He spoke with a South Wales accent when confronted. He brought rope with him to restrain the occupant, and he seemed to have a fascination with guns. For not only if there was a shotgun, an active or decommissioned one, found at the scene of one of the burglaries, would it be taken along with ammunition? The intruder started breaking into properties now, armed constantly with a sawn-off shotgun also and he was prepared to use violence as well. In any case where the intruder was confronted, he was known to threaten or strike any occupiers, as we've said, usually lone women, with the butt of the shotgun, and he'd even been known to have thrown a portable television at one of them when he was confronted on one occasion. The occasions when the intruder was confronted by surprise or panicked were few and far between though. He was thought to be a methodical calculating offender, one who'd likely surveilled the property beforehand to ascertain an escape route and minimise any risk of capture to himself. Take, for example, the night of Friday the 22nd of November, 1996. West Winds is an end-of-row large detached bungalow in the Thurston Lane area of the tiny Pembrokeshire village of Sardis, where at 7.50pm that evening, a female teacher, who we'll call Sheila Clark, was home alone in the living room watching Coronation Street, where undoubtedly Ken Barlow was pressing the flesh in some form or boffing somebody that he didn't love, clearly, and Sheila was awaiting her husband's imminent arrival home. Suddenly, the living room door burst open and she was confronted with the terrifying sight of a man in a combat jacket, gloves and balaclava, brandishing a sawn-off shotgun. He shouted to the woman to fucking get down before asking her if she was alone and telling her not to look at him, stating that he wanted money. Although Sheila was undoubtedly petrified and compliant, because you just would be, wouldn't you? The intruder then launched an unwarranted attack on her with the shotgun, beating her about the face and body with it. She was then dragged roughly into the bedroom and had her head covered with a pair of jeans, her hands tied behind her back with a length of rope the intruder had produced from his pocket, and was then struck again with the butt of the shotgun. As the intruder searched the property, pocketing various items of jewellery and a handbag, Sheila managed to press a panic button installed in the bedroom that activated and sounded a shrill alarm causing the intruder to flee through the front door. He was spotted fleeing over a grass bank outside the bungalow that led onto fields and that was later found to have had a wire fence cut nearby for access by Sheila's neighbour John Munro who chased the intruder for a short distance before the intruder stopped and threatened John with a gun warning him that if he continued in his pursuit he would kill him. John ceased his pursuit with this threat and the intruder fled. Very scary when that happens, I tell you. Within minutes, police were on the scene and with police dogs combing the area, PC Mark Jenkins was soon following the route that the intruder had escaped by through the surrounding fields. Although the trail did peter out after a considerable distance, it was not before several items that had been abandoned by the intruder had been discovered in the hedgerows along his escape route. Primarily discovered, thrown into a hedgerow, was a working sawn-off shotgun. It had had its stock sawn-off and had been modified at some point, with a differing screw from that of manufacture being inserted through the stock and trigger guard to create a point on the firearm that a lanyard could be attached at. There was indeed a lanyard attached to the weapon, made from a short length of nylon cord, 
and at some point previously, the weapon had been coated with black hammerite paint. Also found at points along the trail were two Italian manufactured live shotgun cartridges, a homemade jemmy type tool, a torch and batteries, several woolen type gloves, a head rucksack, a green and purple fleece type jacket, a set of size 9 white puma trainers with the laces cut, and a balaclava. The offender had been spooked enough by the alarm to abandon the tools of his thieving trade, but most crucially, most crucially a balaclava that when examined was found to contain hair from his head, and subsequently, his DNA profile. Now these items were crucial because upon the arrest of the offender, with these police could likely link him to crime scenes through fibre evidence. And of course, because of the balaclava and the hair samples that were gathered from it, any suspect identified could now also be eliminated on the process of examining their DNA sample against the DNA sample that was raised of the offender. And no one could have foreseen just how crucial these items would prove to be once again, many years later. Following this, police now launched Operation Huntsman, which analysed the spate of unsolved burglaries and robberies in North Pembrokeshire, managing to link a series of some 60-plus offences over a period of 13 years to what they believed was the work of the same offender. Looking at the geography of the offences and their cluster patterns, it was believed that the intruder lived somewhere in one of the villages within the Triangle, and thus massive house-to-house -house inquiries were launched in these areas, with all male occupants of the areas being asked to give a voluntary sample of their DNA for comparison. This was understandably a massive, time-consuming but necessary process, and by January 1998, police had arrived at number 34 St Mary's Park in the Pembrokeshire village of Jordanston to speak to the male occupant, a 53-year-old labourer named John William Cooper. When spoken to, a visibly nervous Cooper denied any knowledge of or any involvement in the crimes, but refused to give a voluntary DNA sample, which piqued the interest of police. They also noticed a lot of random property at his house that matched the descriptions of random items that had been reported stolen from crimes linked to the Huntsman investigation, and he was arrested on suspicion of the offences. Still refusing to provide a blood sample, a sample of hair was taken from his head and was found to be a match for the hair sample taken from the balaclava recovered near the scene of the robbery at Westwinds. By the 21st of January 1998, a large search team had begun eight days of intensively searching Cooper's house, its grounds and paddocks and the homes of several of his relatives, leading to more than 3,800 items of property and exhibits being recovered. Aside from several items of clothing that were recovered from Cooper's house and numerous pieces of rope that appeared to have been fastened into hand restraints, there was also a bucket of more than 500 assorted keys, both for properties and vehicles, recovered from a cesspit on Cooper's land. Shotgun parts and components that were recovered from a hedgerow at St Mary's Park, three boxes of packed and assorted loose shotgun cartridges, and a buried, well-oiled shotgun buried a foot underneath a duck run in Cooper's garden. The gun had its stock sawn off, with a screw placed into the stock with washer attached to form an attachment for a lanyard, and had been preserved in oil before being placed in plastic bin bags and concealed in an open sewer pipe. 
A large amount of jewellery was also recovered from each of the locations which were later identified as having come from many of the burglaries and robberies that had been linked under Operation Huntsman, some of which had been burned and discarded. This was thought to have been to either prevent forensic examination or identification or to perhaps try and identify any precious stones which may be present within the item. So many items of property and jewellery had been found and seized that trestle tables had to be set up at nearby Withybush Airfield near Haverford West to display the items when it came for people who had had property stolen to inspect them to see if anything belonged to them. Cooper, meanwhile, denied or gave explanations for everything that was put to him throughout his many interviews. The balaclava, shotgun and various items recovered near Westwinds categorically weren't his. The property or any jewellery found through police searches was either his wife's, who if it was true must have been like Mr T, or he'd bought innocently or it had been given to him. Bearing in mind that a shotgun could be linked to Cooper and he lived in the area of both crimes, one of these interviews concerned the two still unsolved double murders and the Mount Sex attack in the Pembrokeshire area. However, Cooper denied all involvement with any of them and the interview lasted just 13 minutes. And that was one that he would speak in because on many occasions he would give a simple no comment response to interviewers and would even act like a contempt-filled petulant child, turning his back on interviewers, burying his head in his hands or even lying on the floor in the fetal position. This bollocks did him no favours whatsoever and Cooper was linked eventually to 72 different offences which following liaison with the Crown Prosecution Service led to charges of 30 burglaries one burglary with intent and one robbery being brought against him. Going to trial at Swansea Crown Court in December 1998, Cooper was very vocal to the awaiting press as he was led into the court, shouting about everywhere and claiming that he'd been the victim of police fitting him up to clear up a series of unsolved crimes on their books and that it shouldn't be allowed. However, Following the compelling testimony of several experts to the court, highlighting the forensic links between Cooper and the crimes, plus the accounts of homeowners who'd had jewellery, valuables and property stolen in the spate of home invasions over the years, Cooper was convicted of all charges against him. 30 burglaries, a burglary with intent and the Sardis robbery that I described earlier on in the episode. Described as being a one-man crime wave, on the 10th of December 1998, Cooper was sentenced to 16 years imprisonment for his catalogue of crime. Huntsman will continue after a short word from the show's kind sponsor this week, which is once again Stitch Fix. Now I'm sure that for some of you guys, me certainly included, shopping for new clothes and looking around for styles is a right pain in the arse. You know, you see something after having a massive trek round, then you hum and ah about buying it, then you finally decide to, except that when you try it on at home, you actually look like you've been poured into it, or it's massive, or you just generally hate it and everything about it. We've all been there, haven't we? But calm your jets, there is a solution, and that's with friends of the show, Stitch Fix. By simply signing yourselves up over at www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime. That's www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime. You can get yourself started and go from there. 
let me explain some more about them. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that offers to take the dilemmas and woes out of clothes shopping and style seeking away from you, saving you time and definitely your patience by doing it all for you in return for you simply registering and completing a very simple and quick online style quiz. Before you know it, you'll be well dressed and styled how you like and someone else takes care of doing all of that for you. The quiz that you fill out is a fluid, straightforward visual style where you simply click looks that you like and when you've done so, this gives one of Stitch Fix's stylists the information they need to create a trendy new you. Based on your information given and accounting for your preferred budget, sizes and styles, they then seek through and handpick items from the latest and best European fashion brands to put together a five item Stitch Fix parcel for you which gets sent right out to you free of delivery. Once you've received it, then if you like what's been chosen, try the items on with items from your existing wardrobe to see what's hot or what's not, what you like you buy, what's not you think, then you return for free, simple as that. I've had my own Stitch Fix sent to me and I can tell you what a great service it is. You're getting free delivery, five quality items that really were of the styles that I'd indicated that I liked and a fluid option to return for nothing, what's not you think all for just completing a five-minute style quiz that's a world away from your usual harder-than-the-Guardian cryptic signing-up forms and a £10 styling fee that's deducted from the cost of whatever you do decide to keep. To jump on this great service right now and support the show, it's as easy as heading over to www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime once again, that's www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime to grab a new look for you by getting yourself stitch fixed. We will now continue with Huntsman and Ottawa. So, a one-man crime wave. But who exactly was John William Cooper? One of four brothers born in Milford Haven on the 3rd of September 1944, Cooper had an unremarkable upbringing and was academically a non-starter, leaving school in 1960 with a view to becoming an apprentice carpenter and upholsterer. In the early 1960s, he'd had numerous brushes with the law and was up in magistrate's court more than once, but always for offences that were of a lesser nature drunkenness, assault, that kind of thing. Although assault really is another lesser thing. There's no record of any imprisonments for him. Whilst never described as a likeable character, and indeed one that most people tended to avoid, Cooper had still managed to find himself love. There's obviously someone out there for everybody, isn't there? For many years he'd courted and ultimately married his childhood sweetheart Patricia in July 1966 and following their wedding the couple moved to a council property in the Howarth Close area of Milford Haven. A son, Adrian, followed in January 1967 and the Cooper family was complete the following year with the birth of daughter Teresa. A lover of the outdoors, where in his spare time he would more often than not be off fishing or shooting, Cooper worked over the years in a variety of outdoor labouring and menial roles, and by 1978 was employed as a welder's mate at the former Gulf Oil Refinery, which today is occupied by the semi-logistics oil depot on the Milford Haven waterway. It was also that year that his fortunes were to take a turn for the better. 
Already an enthusiastic gambler, he scooped a £94,000 jackpot for a 50 pence chance go on a newspaper spot the ball competition. In 2019 value, this equates to prize money of more than half a million pounds. Cooper opted to take his winnings in the form of £90,000 cash and a Rover Princess car, which was a great car at the time. I remember my dad having one when I was a kid. But it was no kit, of course, as I've already said would be my car of choice, Mr. Abercrombie. I'm sure he knows what I mean there. Cooper later claimed that he shared out £10,000 of these winnings between relatives before booking and heading off on a luxury family holiday to America in 1979. Upon their return, Cooper left his job at the oil refinery and he and his family bought a five-and-a-half-acre small holding at Big House Farm in the Pembrokeshire village of Rosemarket. For two years, whilst his wife had opened and ran a shop called The Tap Room with a friend of hers, Janet Underwood, Cooper, meanwhile, attempted a mix of the farming life, rearing cattle and poultry, stabling horses, and growing barley from his small holding. However, he was not a success at this, realising that his own small holding was not large enough to work this combination, and combined with his poor business decisions, plus his increasing gambling habits and acquired tastes for an extravagant way of life, the prize fund that should have set the Coopers up for life instead began to deplete rapidly. To try and combat this, Cooper sold Big House Farm and the small holding to the manager of the Nelson Hotel in Milford Haven, who didn't pay the full cash asking price, but instead offered to make up the balance in the form of a diamond ring and a cabin cruiser boat, which Cooper accepted. He began contract working as a labourer for farmer Mike Richards in the nearby village of Jordanston, until in 1982 he bought 22 acres of land in the Pembrokeshire village of Johnston, known as the Beaches, and began building a bungalow on part of it. Cooper and family moved into a rented property owned by Mike Richards in Jordanston the same year and once again were now backstabling, cattle rearing and crop growing on the remaining acres of land around the beaches. To source for his own farming, Cooper got to know and had regular dealings with several other farmers in the Pembrokeshire area and further afield, including one Florence Evans, a name that will become familiar at a later time in the story, and one Richard Thomas who kept cattle at nearby Norton Farm. Patricia Cooper, meanwhile, had ceased running the taproom and had instead picked up the threads of her previous vocation, a seamstress, whilst helping with the everyday tasks at the beaches. Did you see what I did there? But despite this, Cooper was still a piss-poor farmer. He still had a worsening gambling and drinking habit, and whatever meagre profit the beaches made, most, if not all of it, would go right back into the bookies or the bandits. Because when Cooper had a lot of money, he gambled a lot of money. He'd think nothing of betting up to 50 quid a day on horse racing. By this time though, John Cooper had found himself another source of income to help fund his gambling. Then in 1987, Patricia was seriously injured when she was kicked by one of the horses she was stabling which despite a partial recovery of sorts from, left her with chronic health problems and unable to work for a lengthy period of time. Through a combination of this and Cooper's gambling, the Coopers were thus forced to abandon the beaches and sell it at a loss to them, sliding into debt. With little money coming in and Cooper unwilling to stop gambling, 
he inevitably began missing rental payments to Mike Richards, despite still working for him as a labourer, and in 1989 things came to a head in a very physical bust-up between Cooper and Mr Richards, which resulted in Cooper being dismissed and receiving notice to vacate 34 St Mary's Park. Although there's no record of any police involvement following this, bust-up is probably a bit of an understatement here. Mike Richards was reportedly left so fearful of Cooper that when Cooper refused to leave St Mary's Park, claiming that he was protected by the Rent Act, he never did and he never paid any rent again. Mike Richards being so afraid of Cooper that he neglected to pursue the eviction or collect any rent from the family for a period of more than nine years, putting himself more than £7,000 out of pocket. Cooper, meanwhile, took great pains to avoid Mike Richards following this and ran the sizeable property into squalor. Unprovoked assault would be entirely in tie-in with the unsavoury and violent character that Cooper was. As I've already said, although he was widely known in the locality for his darts playing, which he regularly officiated at, but was only ever a mediocre player at, and was involved with various other pub sporting teams, he wasn't liked by very many people, and more than one account tells how people would generally give him a wide berth. Perhaps it was his delightful, domineering, bullying character that did this, for it was at home in the presence of his family that Cooper honed this to perfection. He ruled the roost at home, and although there were never any charges raised against him, or even from his scrapes with the laws of youth, to his arrest for the Huntsman crimes a record of any arrests of him, it suggested that Cooper was violent to his family, his wife Patricia, but in particular his son Adrian. Adrian Cooper later changed his name to Andrew Cooper and distanced himself from the family, such was his fractious relationship with his father. Interviewed for a television documentary only a few years ago, Andrew told of how his father would make his presence felt in the family home by being constantly loud and aggressive, and was quick, very quick, with physical punishment. I'm not just talking a clipped ear or a smack around the legs here either. Andrew described how the powerful stocky Cooper would square up to his son and proper physically attack him in a temper, eyes bulging, frothing at the mouth, that kind of rage. A very strong man due to his years of hard physical outdoor work, Cooper would absolutely batter his son into next week for the most minor of things, on one occasion in 1979, leaving Andrew with such injuries after one beating that he was to afterwards have years of chronic spinal problems, leading ultimately to 12 screws being inserted into his spine. On another occasion, Andrew recounted how when he was 11 years old, his father attacked him outside for being late home from fishing, knocking him to the floor and placing the barrel of a shotgun into his mouth, before telling Andrew that the family no longer wanted him around because he was worthless and was better off dead, and then toying with him and ultimately pulling the trigger, with only Cooper knowing that the weapon wasn't loaded. Imagine the type of person who does that to a scared 11-year-old, his own son. There are no words, are there, really? Andrew also described how Cooper was in the habit of keeping a locked blue corrugated metal shed on the premises at St Mary's Park, with strict instructions to the family never to head in there. And Andrew, knowing the consequences if he disobeyed his father, was always too afraid to. However, 
On one occasion when his father was away and he'd left the shed unlocked, curiosity got the better of him. Andrew sneaked in there and found in a metal cupboard underneath a quantity of dark clothing and workwear what looked like other people's possessions, he was to later quote. There were assorted trinkets, photographs of strangers in frames, items of silverware, coins and pieces of jewellery, strangely some of it having clearly been burned. Alongside the usual shed furniture, your pots of screws and nails and assorted tools, that kind of thing, there was also a quantity of shotgun cartridges, loose and some in boxes, and some shotgun components on a workbench in the dirty, untidy shack, and still in the vice attached to the workbench, the sawn-off barrels of a shotgun. Now this discovery formed questions in Andrew's mind, and although he never forgot what he'd seen, He was far too afraid of his father to ever raise it, the relationship far too bad. The shack, or rather its contents, was to be of great interest to Operation Huntsman several years later. Because Cooper had used the sawn-off shotgun and had struck at homes where women were on their own, as we said before, he suddenly became a person of interest concerning the murders of Richard and Helen Thomas at Scoverston Manor and Peter and Gwenda Dixon on the coastal path at Little Haven. Now he'd been questioned about both of these crimes, but on the basis of just the most circumstantial evidence of him living nearby and speculation alone that he may be involved, I mean, you do tend to favour the known gun-toting wrongans in an area first and foremost as suspects, don't you? He was admitting nothing whatsoever and simply flat out denied being involved in either crime. Although this is shortly after the inception of the National DNA Database, and so Cooper's DNA was now on the system, no forensic evidence had been obtained from the killer at the scene of these crimes as well. If police wanted to progress the viability of Cooper as a suspect any further, then they needed something tangible to link him to the murders, which they didn't have. Or... Rather, they didn't realise they had at the time. Fast forward now to 2005 and a major review was being carried out of cold cases that had been reopened and successfully resolved due to advances in forensic science. When it got to Pembrokeshire, they had of course the dark cloud of the two unsolved double murders at Scoverston Manor and the Little Haven coastal path, plus the harrowing Mount sex attack which all being unsolved had long haunted the force and ones that they were eager to try and bring to a successful conclusion. So in August 2005, Detective Superintendent Steve Wilkins, Deputy Head of Dovid Powers CID, submitted a recommendation to the powers that be that a thematic forensic review of undetected serious crime in Pembrokeshire be carried out, including, of course, both double murders and the sex attack. It was known that Cooper had been interviewed previously about these crimes and had denied everything, and previous heads of Dovid Powers CID, whilst recognising him as a decent suspect, had decided that there would have to be substantial evidence discovered, forensic, that would connect him to them, but had since done nothing to pursue this. Detective Superintendent Wilkins, now reviewing the Huntsman reports on Cooper, agreed with their suspicions of him as a very strong suspect in both double murders and the Mount sex attack, and it was on this basis that the review was requested and approved. It led to the formation of Operation Ottawa, and by February 2006, a small team had been formed, 
led by Detective Superintendent Wilkins, with the purpose to review and re-examine the investigations into the unsolved double murders of Richard and Helen Thomas and Peter and Gwenda Dixon, plus the mount attacks on the five children. All exhibits and evidence that had been retained from each original investigation were to be traced and catalogued, anything missing from these was to be established and found if possible, and a review was to be made of items that had either been previously submitted for forensic examination to suggest that they were once again looked at, this time with the benefit of forensic advancement, or to recommend the submission of items that had not previously been examined. It rapidly became apparent to the Ottawa team that the Huntsman Inquiry exhibits and material would be extremely relevant to the review that they were conducting. Even though charges were only brought in 30 cases, Huntsman had identified some 68 offences of burglary that they believed were the work of Cooper, but in addition to these there had also been four robberies linked, all involving a lone female. The first had been in April 1985 in the Crossways area of Milford Haven, where the occupant was threatened with violence by a masked intruder and had property stolen, before in September of that year, a house in Rosemarket was targeted and again a lone female attacked. This time, her hands were bound behind her back with rope that the offender had brought to the scene. Then in September 1994, it was a house in Sardis where a lone female was tied with rope bought by the intruder and threatened with violence before he left having stolen jewellery. He was also armed with a double-barreled sawn-off shotgun in this case, and then two years later, in November 1996, came the robbery at West Winds, the one I described earlier this episode, and the robbery that Cooper was convicted of. So, from 1985 onwards, Cooper's offences had become more prolific, the violence he'd used had increased, and he'd also acquired a shotgun from somewhere to use in his crimes and slap-bang in the middle of the offending cluster, Scoverston Manor. Coincidence? Or had this been the source of the shotgun? So, much of the evidence from Operation Huntsman had now become of great interest to the Ottawa team, and when a forensic service provider, LGC Forensics, had been engaged by Ottawa, by December 2006, John William Cooper was named as a suspect in the unsolved murders of Richard and Helen Thomas, Peter and Gwenda Dixon, and the Mount Sex Attack. And the more that the Ottawa team looked at the circumstantial evidence they had to that point, the more they became convinced they were on the right lines with him and their killer was already behind bars. One with a ticking clock of parole looming up for him as well, as he'd served more than half his sentence. But he was going nowhere for the time being and it gave the Ottawa team a chance to begin looking at Cooper as the prime suspect in the crimes and employing LGC forensics to examine various materials and exhibits from each of the separate investigations, with a view to either proving or disproving his involvement by using the latest techniques in forensic detection. They firstly had to arrange all of the evidence retained from the Scoverston Manor and Coastal Path killings to be transferred from storage at the Forensic Science Services building in Chepstow and the main historic Doved Powys police venue in Haverford West across to the LGC laboratories in Oxfordshire, then create a fresh new inventory against the existing notes to establish any exhibits or materials that were missing. 
and indeed many items were. For example, some items of Peter and Gwenda Dixon's clothing had been misplaced and was later discovered in a separate storage bin at Chepstow. Whilst many exhibits from Scoverston Manor had even been destroyed many years before, with the authorisation of the then SIO, as at the time forensic opportunity was deemed too limited and storage space was needed. Now it's easy to look back and balk about this with hindsight and think, bloody hell, what are you doing? But back then, who knew how forensic science would advance and space was needed, I suppose. Crime doesn't wait about, does it? By March 2007, Operation Ottawa had been running for a full year, and by that time a large number of material and exhibits from all relevant previous investigations were in the possession of LGC Forensics. It was practically to be a complete reinventory and re-examination of the forensic evidence from so many years before, and was so a painstaking task. Can you imagine? I mean, it's not just something that you do in your dinner hour, or chuck under a microscope for five minutes and it's done. It must take considerable time under specific conditions, with extreme care and stringent testing that may produce time-dependent results. One of the results LGC Forensics had managed to achieve so far through the review though, albeit a time-consuming one, was to raise a full DNA profile of each of the murder victims. In doing so, they also managed to clear up an unresolved mystery, and with it a tangent that the Scoverston Manor investigation had gone off on. The anal swab that had been taken from the post-mortem of Richard Thomas in 1985 had revealed the presence of semen and it was believed that he'd had intercourse with another man shortly before his death. Now back in 1985, scientists could only provide a blood group from this semen, a group which was found to match Richard Thomas's. This had, of course, led to countless hours that were spent looking for a possibly murderous lover of Richard's, who was never found. There was also no other evidence found of Richard Thomas having a secret life or being gay at all, the sole evidence that had begun this line of inquiry was the presence of semen found at his post-mortem and was the sole evidence that this theory was based on. Now, with more than 20 years' development in forensic science, this theory was reinvestigated. There was a single slide containing semen remaining from the 1985 post-mortem which had not been opened previously as it was sealed, and it had been feared that the process of opening may well have been destructive when the glass slides were separated. Yet what is the point of having something you can test but not testing it? So it was opened and 21st century forensically examined. It produced a conclusive result of a full DNA profile, belonging to Richard Thomas. The semen had been his own. It had simply been a case of cross-contamination, possibly caused due to the extensive burns that he'd received. A forensic criminal psychologist, Dr Adrian West, had also been engaged by Ottawa early on to advise how best to approach Cooper when the team came to interview him at a later stage. Now they were playing a long game with this really, wanting to build as full a case as possible beforehand and develop the best interview strategy they could for him. Dr West had met Cooper previously as he'd been involved in a similar assessment of him as an offender for the Huntsman Inquiry and so he told the Ottawa team how Cooper would like being in control of a situation 
how he was an uncontrollable liar who would convince himself that he was telling the truth even through blatant lies and how he painted a picture of himself as a person who was universally liked, who was helpful to everyone, who was like a good Samaritan and was successful, whereas the polar opposite was actually much more accurate. Over a series of meetings with the Ottawa team, Dr. West advised as to a strategy of how best to approach him at interview to allow him to believe he had control of the conversation whilst actually steering him or letting him steer himself towards areas of relevance. Because most of Cooper's crimes where a person was involved had involved violence towards women, it was decided to use a male-female interviewer combination to deliberately put Cooper on the back foot which would either work as a strategy, or it wouldn't. Bloody hell, Paul, state the obvious there, why don't you? And then Dr. West, who'd interviewed scores of dangerous offenders over the years, provided an explosive statement in case police ever needed a reminder of why exactly they believed Cooper was a four-time killer. Asked how he would best describe Cooper as an offender, Dr. West pondered the question for a short time, and then replied, there are two people I've come across in my professional career who if I awoke in the middle of the night to find them in my bedroom, I know I would have to kill them to survive. One is Donald Nielsen, the so-called Black Panther, and the other is John William Cooper. Scary stuff, eh? So Cooper was undoubtedly a dangerous, violent and prolific criminal. 16-year prison sentence highlights that, doesn't it? But was he a killer with it? Could police find the evidence that would prove this? And in the next episode, we shall find out, because as I'm sure you can gather, I'm wrapping it up here, and that's it for this part. Complex case or what this one, isn't it, eh? I know it's been a bit of an in-depth one so far, but all I can say is, you should have tried writing the bloody thing, and just wait until you hear the next one. I'll go and put the finishing touches to that part right now then, which is practically done, it just needs a bit of tweaking, and hopefully you can join me for it next week. I thank you very much for joining me here today for part 3, and I look forward to catching you guys again next time, where we shall continue with the saga of the South Wales Slayer. Until we speak next then, I've been, I still am, and still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing all of you guys good and safe times, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care folks and goodbye for now.